Alright, well they say confession is good for the soul, right? Now why is it so hard? Right? If it's supposed to be good things that are good for you, you're supposed to be easy, right? That's not the way it usually works though. Um, exercise is hard. We know on the, in the physical side of things. Um, studying for an exam can be hard. Uh, but we know all those things can be good for you. And in the spiritual realm, um, confession's not always easy, um, but it's good for the soul. That's the old saying. And some of the hardest words that we find as humans to ever say sometimes is, I was wrong. And I am sorry. Or I won't do that again. Or anything like that, right? We don't like to admit being wrong because our, our pride uh, fights that. It's against human nature because uh, we like to be right and we tend to think we are right. Um, however, the truth is we can't be right with God unless we own up to our wrongness. Um, uh, we, we are just bent towards wrong. And so we have to be in a good habit of admitting we're wrong uh, with God and many times with others uh, if we're going to walk in a right relationship with God. And if you're going to walk with God, if you're going to uh, walk in repentance, we have to come to God in repentance and we have to, we have to continue uh, in repentance. We've talked about that before. Having that posture of repentance of how we've turned from God, excuse me, turned from sin to God in Christ and how we keep that posture um, throughout our life. And so when we find ourselves in sin, uh, we find ourselves coming back to God in repentance, uh, dealing with our sin and continuing in that relationship with Him. I said last week, personal renewal in your life and revival won't happen if, uh, apart from you um, and apart from God's Word and apart from the Holy Spirit. You have to have those three ingredients. And this week, it's, it's, it's really a, a big focus on the you part. Uh, we're going to, we're also going to see a lot with, uh, God's Word interaction here and God's Spirit at work in their hearts. But this is really, we're going to see in Nehemiah this morning, uh, the people of God's response, um, to much of what they had read the week before. We have been going through the book of Nehemiah for the last several weeks. And, um, at this point in Nehemiah, the walls have been built. If you're, if you're new with this, Nehemiah, um, had gotten burdened when he had heard that the walls were still down in Jerusalem and the people were living in shame. Some little over a hundred years before that. Babylon had come in and besieged that city and they had went into captivity, the whole Babylonian exile. And while the city had begun to be repopulated over the last several years and some things had been rebuilt and temple worship was being resumed, uh, the walls were still down, the city was still open to attack and it was really kind of still in spiritual disarray. And Nehemiah hears about that. He's the cupbearer to the king in Persia, which was the ruling uh, ruling group, the ruling nation at that time that Jeru- uh, the, the Jews were under were under them at that particular point. And he gets burdened to go as a, as a young Jewish man to go and to lead this effort to rebuild these walls for the glory of God and for the good of Jerusalem and God's people. And so he goes to the king, he gets permission, and in a whole act of bravery he goes and leads this and rallies God's people. And we've seen them over the last few weeks, they have battled opposition from the surrounding nations that didn't want the walls to go up. They've battled opposition from within as they've had to battle their own selfishness and their own greed in the process and deal with those issues. Many things that could prevent them from doing what God had called them to do in their kingdom work. And last week we saw that the walls had went up and they came together for the reading of the Word of God. And this was around the time, approaching the time for the Festival of Booths. And they stand up and they read the Word of God and the people are broken as they read the law for hours upon hours. And they're mourning and they're weeping and they're told though by the Levites, and they're told by Ezra, the priest, to not 
weep, but to rejoice. This was supposed to be a festival of joy, and they were supposed to rejoice, and so they were kind of commanded to go and to rejoice. So they put their weeping aside, and they have this big celebration. And that's where we left off last week. Well, we pick, off, pick up this week in Nehemiah 9, about three weeks has passed. The festival of booths is over with, and, it's, and now they're going to approach that time of mourning. And so, as we read this morning, uh, we've got a long chapter, so uh, a really, really long, probably the longest portion of Scripture we've covered thus far in Nehemiah, and so we're going to kind of read chunks of it. We'll skip around a little bit this morning to give us the sense of it for the sake of time, and uh, and we're going to pull away some big takeaways from this time of confession um, that the people of God have uh, before God. So look with me, starting in Nehemiah chapter nine, verse one. Now. On the 24th day of this month, we left off on the second day, if you'll remember last week. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites, <coughs> excuse me, and the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. So we left off last week. They were feasting and they were celebrating. We pick up this week, they are mourning and they are fasting. Um, they, 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 have, they have approached the time to mourn for their sin. And so, in verse 1, it says they were... We see that they're fasting instead of feasting. But it also talks about this, 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 this deal with the sackcloth and the earth on their heads. And that was a sign of repentance. And one commentator even pointed out that the, that the earth on the head um, was a sign of, their, of this, their frailty before God. And then in verse 2, they had separated themselves from the foreigners. This was about their sin. It wasn't a time that the foreigners who were among them, didn't, they didn't have anything to do with the sin that they're about to confess. This wasn't on them. This was on Israel. And so it was a time to pull away from them and to, and to, and to, and to, deal, with, and to deal with their, their do, do business with God. And it says for a quarter of the day, they read the law, and a quarter of the day they confessed sin. That's about three hour chunks is what people estimate that is. So three hours of reading the Bible, three hours of confessing their sin, right? And so, and then in verses 4 and 5, they just begin to worship as the Levites call on them to stand and to worship the Lord their God, to praise Him and to bless Him, and they begin to do that. And what we're happening here is the people are beginning, they're, they're, they're seeking God. They, they, they've had God's Word read. They're reading God's Word again. They're coming back a few weeks later. They're reading God's Word again. And they're responding by seeking God and seeking to worship God. As I said, you can't experience personal renewal apart from God's Spirit, apart from God's Word, and apart from you. And they're beginning to experience that now as God's Spirit begins to drive God's Word into their heart. And they are responding, right? This is their response of worship. And then verses 6 through verse 31, this large section, is a prayer. Um, really all the way through verse 38 is a prayer. But in verses 6 through 31, their prayer is focused on the, the their history up to that point. And it's an incredible re-accounting of the history of the Jews up to this point and God's faithfulness in their life. It's a, it's a prayer that is focused on who God is, who they are, what they have done, and what God has done. That is what the prayer is about. And in verse 6, we, they talk about creation. How God is the Creator and how He is supreme. 
The prayer focuses on how God is the only God, that He alone is the Lord. And then in verses 7 through 8, um, they, begin, they turn from creation to Abraham, right? And so you've just, they're, like they're going through Genesis. They're going through their history. It's God's, as the covenant maker. He chooses Abraham and He makes a covenant with Abraham and He keeps a covenant with Abraham. Promises Abraham this land, this promised land. And then in verses 9 through 21, it goes from creation to Abraham to Moses, right? They go to the time of Moses. And we see in this picture, God as their shepherd. In verses 9 through 12, they cover, they talk about the Exodus and how God delivered them from Egypt and slavery. In verses 13 and 14, we see God giving them the law to teach them how to live a holy life. Then in verses 9 through 15, God's providing for them while they're in the wilderness, right? And so they have manna from heaven, they have water to drink while they're in the desert. And then in verse 16, their sin enters the picture. So pick back up with me in chapter 9 verse 16. In spite of all this, in spite of God's leading them and guiding them and raising up leaders and, and providing for them in such incredible ways, verse 16, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Verses 16 through 21 focuses on their sin and God's faithfulness, His provision. He even gives them His Spirit to instruct them, it later says. And then in verses 22 through 25, they, begin, they go from Moses to the time of Joshua where they got to enter the promised land and they have this great and good land filled with all these things, plants that they didn't plant, buildings they didn't build. And verses 26 through 29 focuses on the time of the judges. It's a crazy portion of Scripture uh, where a lot of craziness goes on. One of the strangest books you'll read is the book of Judges. And it focuses on this time when they would wander off into sin and God would send somebody to save them. And they would rebel and God would send somebody to save them. A Savior it calls. It's talking about the Judges. And then finally, the time of discipline arrives. They continue to, continue to, continue to reject God and push back against God. And then exile happens in verse 30. Chapter 9, verse 30 and 31. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies you did not make an end to them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. And then in verse 32, it turns to the present. So they've retraced the history that we've kind of summarized here and just read some portions of. And then in verse 32 to 38, it turns to their present prayer and their present time. Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people, since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we're slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please. And we are in great distress. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document 
are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. So, once again, they're coming. You see there in verse 32, they come back to who is God? His greatness, what God does, he, the covenant-keeping God, His steadfast love. And they begin to call on Him to remember them in their hardship. And in verse 33, this is the key verse really in my opinion. If you were to sum up the whole chapter in one verse, it's verse 33. God has acted faithfully, they have done wickedly. Uh, that is pretty much the Bible in a nutshell. <laughs> that, that is pretty much Israel in the Old Testament in a nutshell. And if you got real honest, that's me and you pretty much in a nutshell, right? God has acted faithfully. They have acted wickedly. This is their story. This is our story. This is the story of God's people. And in verse 34 and 35, they begin to explain how they rebelled. And then in verses 36 and 37, what you see there, it's their present condition as, as being subject to the people of Assyria. And here they are. Enslaved. Here they are. They don't have authority over their own selves. Here they are. They're not able to rule themselves as their own nation. Here they are, subject to this other people. Yet they're in the promised land. Yet they're they're in this people. They're in Jerusalem. They're not. They're no longer. These groups are no longer exiled to a foreign land. It's like salt on the wound. And then in verse thirty-eight, they begin to make this new covenant. And it goes into, that goes and it leads into chapter ten, where they enact. Where basically what they're doing is they're recommitting to the old covenant. They're, they're making a covenant to keep the covenant. It's, it, for lack of a better term, they're rededicating their life. Okay, they're they're they're, they're turning over. They're, they're turning things back over to where, the way things they should be. They're turning back to God. It's a it's a moment of repentance. Now, big chapter. Lots of things that we could go over. We could literally preach for weeks in this chapter and walk through it. Um, there's so much rich history here between God and Israel that we that we could really spend a lot of time there. But there's some big chunks that I just kind of want us to see kind of these big pieces that I think will aid us and help us in our own time of confession and our own time of repentance. These are things that help shape and mold us to be a people um, who are a confessing people, people who are a repentant people. The first thing that we learn, number one, they had the right perspective on God and man. They had a right perspective on God and man, who God was and who they were. God was great and man was little. God was big and man was small, right? They are mourning in verse 1 with sackcloth and earth on their heads. Remember the earth, one of the symbols, the things that earth symbolizes is their frailty before God. They understand their frailty before God. From the very beginning of the chapter, we see they're coming humbly to God in a position of weakness. All through the chapter in chapter 9, Israel is benefiting from God's actions. God's the Creator, they're the creatures, right? God chooses Abraham, they're the ones that are chosen. They're in the position of needing the benevolent love of God. And the land was given to them by who? By God. And then in verses 9-11 through 11, in the Exodus, they're enslaved and God has to rescue them. I mean, they're always in the position of need. All their blessings come from God. Their rich history comes from God. They had nothing to offer. They, they are in a position where they clearly understand that. As you read the chapter, you clearly see them in a position of, we're little, but God is big. In verse 6, they talk about God as sovereign creator. He alone is Lord. He created everything. In verse 8, we see that God is the promise keeper. He's the righteous one who not only made a covenant, but kept the covenant. In verses 9 through 12, He works miracles at the Exodus, parts the Red Sea, sends the plagues, does all He needs to do to rescue them. In verse 13, God builds a relationship with them by, by, by speaking with them, right? He gives them the law to teach them how to live a holy life. God's pursuing a relationship with them again. And then in verse 15, when they're hungry and thirsty in the desert, it's God who provides for them. In verse 19, it's God who leads them with a pillar of cloud. 
In verse 20, it's God who's instructing him by His Spirit. In verse 21, it's God who sustained them in the wilderness so that they lacked no good thing. And what you see through all this is that God's in the position, that God's the doer, God's the supplier, God's the one who is great, God's the one who is powerful, and they are the one who is in need, and the one who is weak, and the one who needs help. Verse 32 sums it up well. The great, the mighty, and the awesome God. That's their view of God. And that's one of the major themes we see throughout the chapter. Understanding who God is, and understanding who we are, is essential to a relationship with God. See, it took humility to pray the prayer that they're praying. When you understand God's greatness and your smallness, you can say like the Levites did in verse 5, Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all, blessing and praise. When you have this picture that God is great and God is greater than you. A.W. Tozer correctly stated this, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That's a big quote when you think about it. The most important thing about us... Tozer said, he wrote a lot of great books on worship, The Pursuit of God being a great one. He said, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Now, the question is, is that true? And I would say it is true because what you think about God and how you view God shapes everything else about your life and how you think about everything else. It's more important than your political views. It's more important than your, your favorite sports views and sports teams and what your, all these other things. Your view on financial matters and your view on this and your view on... Your view of God shapes everything else. Or it should. Your view of God shapes your view of you. Your view of God shapes your view of life, of what's important and what's not important, of what's right, of what's wrong. It, it begins to shape everything. And when you look back on their life... Now think about the, pe- the people of Israel. If you're familiar with their history and some of the stuff that we talked about, they look back on their life and what we see is a lot of pain. You don't see... I mean, it's just a lot of pain. I mean, they're, they're, they're slaves in Egypt. They're wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. I mean, it, it's just... It's a lot of pain. And in their current state, I mean, there's just a lot of pain, a lot of reasons to complain, maybe. To whine, to be bitter, whatever. And at times in their history, they were that way. They could. This prayer could have just been filled with hurt and with pain. But when you read this, you and I challenge you to go do that, to just sit and read the whole chapter. It really has quite the effect when you read it. Your takeaway is not, wow, that is a miserable people. Wow, that is a people that went through a lot of pain. Wow, they had a lot of failures and a lot of successes. Your takeaway is, wow, how God provided for them. Wow, how God worked in the midst of all that was going on, in the midst of all this pain. Look at what God did. I mean, when you read the chapter, that's the takeaway you walk away from it with because their worldview was being shaped by who God was, not by what they had been through, not by how difficult it had been. They got off track at times, but here at this particular place, in this particular time, they're having this revival-type moment where they're beginning to understand and beginning to come to terms with who they are and who God is. And when you look back on your history, do you see pain and suffering? Well, probably. But is that how you define things or do you see the good hand of God? Do you see God's power on display, God's provision in your life? How do you view God? Do you view God as actively at work in your life, as providing and protecting? See, either God's going to be big and you're going to see God as sovereign and big and at work and weaving things together through your life, and you're going to be small, and less significant than God, or you're going to be most significant and God's going to be smaller. It's going to be one or the other. Both you and God can't both be the dominant figures in your life and in your world, in your view 
somebody's going to trump the other one. And the person that has a really big view of themselves and a really small God, how do you think they handle stress? And when sickness comes along, right? When they have a need, who do you think they will run to and trust immediately? Who do you think they will put their faith in? Who do you think... See, your view of God shapes everything. It determines who you're going to run to when things go rough. It determines how you're going to react when things are going to go well. It determines about how puffed up you're going to get in your successes and how crushed you're going to get in your failures. Your view of God and how that shapes your view of you changes everything. And our point is, we won't properly seek God and go to God in confession as they're doing here if we don't view God properly. If we see ourselves as not needing God, it's because we have a wrong view of God and a wrong view of self. A proper view of God drives us to believe and faith and trust and to prayer. To look not to ourselves or to others, but to look to God for His help, His deliverance, His strength, His provision. So that's the first thing we see. Is they had the right view of God. And we need to understand that to be a people who are postured in repentance and confession and seeking God, we have to be a people who views God as greater than us. And that sounds simple, but it's a little different in practice sometimes. Secondly, they had the right perspective on sin and grace. They understood God's grace was greater than their sin. As you go through this prayer... They're talking about God's powerful provision in verses 6 through 15. Then in verse 16, like I said, the focus turns towards their sinful response to God. Our fathers acted presumptuously. They stiffened their necks and did not obey in verse 16. Verse 17, they refused to obey, but they stiffened their neck. You are a God ready to forgive, though. You are a God gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in, in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. The passage begins to go, the theme of the passage begins to be developed, and it's this give and take of sin, 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 grace, 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 sin, grace, sin, grace, and in the end, grace wins. But it, it's this constant theme of their sinfulness and God's grace. Maybe you think, well, it'll be easy to go. They're confessing the sins of their ancestors. Well, in verse 33, they're talking about themselves. We have acted wickedly. It's, it's, it's corporate. It's Yes, it's the sins of the past and it's their present sins. They're confessing them all. And they had the... See, to understand grace fully, you kind of have to understand sin too. And you won't really understand sin without understanding who God is. All this stuff goes together. Notice that they're very honest about their sin in this passage. Did you notice that? They didn't mince words. Listen to how they described their sin. Verse 16, presumptuous. Stiffened neck. Disobedient. Did not obey. Refused to obey. Not mindful of God's wonders is a phrase they use. Verse 26, disobedient, rebelled, cast God's law behind their back, killed the prophets. Blasphemy is listed in verse 26. Verse 28, they say evil. Verse 29, turned a stubborn shoulder. Verse 33, acted wickedly, did not pay attention. (laughs) They're not soft-peddling this. They're not sugar-coating this. They're using very vivid terms to describe their sin, their rebellion, and their stubbornness because they're making zero excuses for it. They were honest about the worst of their sins and they didn't sugarcoat them. In verse 18, they say, even when they had made for themselves a golden calf. That phrase there, even when they had done this, is they're showing that this man, this was a time that Israel would look back on when Moses, you remember the story? Moses goes up to get the Ten Commandments and when he comes back down, Israel has grown so impatient 
This is after the Exodus. They've grown so impatient that they have, they've talked Aaron. They've asked Aaron to build them a golden calf. And so they pull all their gold together and he makes them this huge golden calf while Moses is away. And they begin to worship the golden calf. And as it says here in this passage, they begin to give the calf credit for getting them out of Egypt. The thing that they just made, they begin to say, this is what delivered us, and they begin to worship it. This is what they do after God takes them out of the Exodus. And it was just seen as this horrible time in Israel's history, where right after a moment of extreme deliverance, and when God is actually communicating with them by speaking to Moses and giving them the law to teach them how to live a holy life, in the midst of all of that, they turn their back on God and worship a cow. A gold cow that they made with their hands. And it was this horrible time and it cost many people their lives as God came in judgment upon this. And their point is they're looking at that and they're saying, even when we did that, even when we did that, and they're being very honest, they're not holding back anything. They're, they're bringing up even the ugly stuff from their past. The stuff that we like to erase and act like it never happened and never think about it again. And it's just like, that's like that never even happened. I'll just turn the page on that. It never happened. They, they're using this to kind of go, even when I was in that situation, even when I did that, God was faithful to me. They're owning the worst of their sin and they own the consequences of all their sin. They're not blaming God for their situation. In verses 30 and 31, it says God gave them into the hand of the people. God gave them into the hand of the Babylonians for exile and now into the hand of the Assyrians. But they're saying all through this that their sin is what caused it. It's their own fault. The walls that were torn down, they just had to rebuild. That was their fault. The captivity, it's all their fault. It's the consequences of their sin. If we don't learn to own the consequences of our sin, not just that we did something wrong, but the fallout from it's on us, we'll be a bitter people and an angry people much more than we'll be a joyful people. And they didn't just own the sin, they owned the consequences. They, they could have said, you know, we did wrong, but, <laughs> but God, you should have. But these people, they're, these Assyrians, they're bad people. These Babylonians, they're bad people. They, no, we, we really messed up and we deserved exactly what came to us. And that's part of growing up. That's part of growing up spiritually. Is understanding that sometimes there are consequences for our sins. There are always consequences. Sometimes they're smaller than others. Sometimes they last a lifetime. And if we die without Christ, it lasts an eternity. But there's consequences for our sin. Let me ask you, when you confess your sin to God, do you make excuses? Or are you honest? Even about the worst stuff. They're even honest about their stubbornness. They stiffen neck. That's what it means, right? It's like putting the collar on the animal and it just stiffened and they don't want it. They said that, that was us. We wouldn't come under your obedience. We wouldn't come under and submit. We stiffened our neck because we didn't want to obey. They're honest about their stubbornness. See, honesty with God is the first step towards intimacy with God. It's the, really the first step in intimacy in any relationship. But you've got to have honesty. You've got to be honest with God. You can't hold on to and continue in or hide our sin and walk in intimacy with God. Sin separates us from God. We know that. God is holy. That's why... When you become a Christian, you have to repent of your sin, right? Jesus came to deal with our sin. But if you don't see your sinfulness, you won't see your need for Jesus. We have to be honest about our sin or we won't see our need for a Savior in the first place. And as a believer, your sins are forgiven, yes, but you still sin and you still need to confess and forsake your sin. See, these people, you notice, they're not victims. There's no, but God, we just had a bad day or a bad couple hundred years. (laughs) It was just a real stressful time for us, God. Things have been hard. I've had a lot going on at work. You know? That's why I did that. No, we're sinful. We're wicked and we're stubborn. And we would all do a lot better 
when we go before God with our sin, if we didn't bring Him our excuses that we give to everybody else? Because He already knows. And we just said, you know what? <laughs> I'm stubborn. You know what? I, I'm pretty wicked at times. You know what? There's no excuse for the way I acted. There's, there's no excuse for my attitude. There's no excuse for that plan, that thought, that action. So here's the thing. Your view of God will affect your view of sin. It's, it's directly correlated. If, if, God, if you're not serious about God, you won't be serious about sin. If you don't see God as holy, you won't see sin as wicked. It's directly connected. You can't view God as the Lord, awesome and worthy of worship, and view sin as a small thing because of what God says about sin. People who know and love God see sin as a destructive force and they hate it. Your view of God will affect your view of sin. And listen, your view of sin will reflect your view of God. If you don't think sin's serious business, if you see sin as no big deal, if you see sin as something to be trifled with, then you're not real serious about God. Our, our view of God is reflected in how we treat sin many times. People who think sin is no big deal really think God is no big deal. We don't understand who God is if we don't understand what sin is. And we won't understand what sin is until we understand what God is. These things reflect on one another. Jesus taught us that we should be willing to tear out our eye, cut off our limb, right, and get away from it if, to get away from the sin. That was what Jesus said. He said, he said, it's better to have two eyes and go to heaven, right? Or excuse me, one eye and go to heaven than two eyes and go to hell, so to speak. You're familiar with that? Jesus repeated that. It's a few times in the New Testament. It's a hyperbolic statement. Not because Jesus wants you to go cut off your arm today, because Jesus also taught that it's a matter of the heart, not a matter of your arm or your eyes or, your, or whatever. The, the point is this. You're supposed to take sin seriously, and you're supposed to get violent with sin, and do anything to get it out of your life. And the pain you suffer to... Get it out, to dig it out, to cut it out, to throw it away. The pain that it might cause in your life, the destruction it might bring in your life, is a lot better than the pain and the destruction of hell. Because people that aren't really serious about sin aren't really serious about God. And people that aren't serious about God don't know God. They don't know God. It's a reflection. But see, when you understand sin, only people that understand the grossness and the seriousness of sin understand the amazing nature of grace. You are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And you didn't forsake them. They didn't just see their sin for what it was and own up to it. They saw God's grace. A healthy view of sin without a healthy view of grace is depressing. <laughs> it, will, it will crush you. It, it, will make you, it will make you miserable. Some people have that. They have a very healthy view of sin and God's holiness. And they don't have a healthy view of grace. I love the stories when he says... I love the phrase here when it says, You are God ready to forgive. I love that phrase. You're ready to forgive. I thought about the prodigal son when I read that phrase. And how Jesus told the story. Remember the story of the prodigal son? And how he goes off and basically tells his dad, I just wish you were dead Give me so I could have my inheritance. He takes his inheritance and he runs off and he squanders it all. And he finds himself just eating pig food basically and living in the muck. And then he comes to his senses one day and decides he'll go back home. And as he's going home, he didn't even get to the door before his father sees him because he's been looking for him and waiting for him. The father he had wished dead and took his inheritance and wasted it all and just shamed his family name. And he runs out to meet him and clothes him and kisses him and hugs him. And Jesus told us that story for us to understand how God treats sinners and how God loves sinners. I understand that passage a lot better than I did three and a half years ago. 
You know, when, when, when Cannon gets in trouble, which is often, um, and we have to discipline Cannon or spank Cannon or whatever, I try to always, as soon as we're done, to grab Cannon, to hug Cannon, to kiss Cannon, and tell Cannon I love him. And so why do, why do you do that? Because I don't want him to I want him to understand something. Just because he did something wrong and he needed to be punished for it, it was really discipline more than punishment, but just because he, he needed that doesn't change my heart towards him. Doesn't change my heart towards him. You know what God doesn't do, Christian? God doesn't discipline you for your sin and then give you the silent treatment the rest of your life. He doesn't do that. He still loves you. He's still ready to forgive. He's still gracious and he's still merciful. God is a loving and gracious Father ready to forgive. God can forgive because He is gracious and merciful. He says He's ready to forgive. Well, that doesn't mean anything unless He's gracious and merciful. And because He's rich in grace, and because He's rich in mercy, He's able to forgive. And we have opportunity today to take advantage, to, to hold on to His grace and His mercy because He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. If He wasn't slow to anger, you and I wouldn't be here today. <laughs> we wouldn't have had church today. We would just be a dirty spot on the ground if He wasn't slow to anger. But He's slow to anger. He's patient with us. The whole point is that they deserve to, to be forsaken and destroyed, and yet God, they give God every reason to wipe them off the face of the planet, yet God is constantly forgiving them and extending grace to them and offering them a chance to repent because He loves His people. When we see and understand what sin is in the light of who God is, that's when grace becomes amazing. Hey, we, we, there's an old Ray Comfort illustration. We don't know who Ray Comfort is, but um, but there's an old Ray Comfort illustration uh, where he talks about. You know, imagine if I if you were to come into church today, for instance, and I were to say to you, you know, hey, no worries, I paid that ticket for you. I got you off the hook. You're good to go. And you would probably be like, what are you talking about? I didn't have, have a ticket. But it's different if I say, hey, this morning. On the way over here, there was a 5K going on over here, raising money for the police department, and you about ran 15 runners off the street and about killed four police officers on your way over here in your car because you wasn't paying attention. But hey, no worry, I took care of it. I paid the penalty for you. Well, then I'll, now you're grateful, right? And that's the kind of the way it is with grace. You don't really understand grace until you understand sin. Until you understand wickedness. Until you understand judgment. Until you understand who we are. And you won't really understand that until you understand who God is. And that He is holy. And that He is just. And He is awesome. And that He is worthy of worship. All these things connect. And in this prayer, you see them coming forward. Now, so at the very center of Christianity stands a God who sent His Son to die for sinners. Who chose us even though we rejected Him. And when you come to Christ, it's God's grace in the gospel that captures your heart. And one of the keys to victory over sin as a Christian is to see that just as God's grace triumphed over sin at the cross, it continues to do that today in your life. You don't graduate from grace. And what we see here is as they go through this and as they have this, we see this understanding of God and we see that God is big and I am small and we see grace is greater than sin. It all comes to culmination here towards the end of the chapter and we see that the third thing they understand is they understand God's working in their life was meant to lead them to repentance. That all of this was meant to lead to repentance. When they get to the last section and they're asking God in verse 32 to not let all the hardships seem little to them, they're turning to God now, right? They're turning to God in their life. And as they looked back in their history, they saw sin galore, but grace abounding, right? And they, just, they see God's grace and it gives them confidence to come to God. 
Because he knows he's, they know he's been patient with them and forgiven them in the past. And they understand that God's continued faithfulness and grace was meant to lead them to repentance, not to lead them to continue in sin. In verse 38, they say, because of all this, because of what? Because of all that you've done. Because even though that we've wandered off into sin time and again, and you've been faithful to forgive us, because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. Because of all this, we're coming back to you. Because of all this, we turn things, but we repent. We come back. We commit ourselves to our covenant with you. As they reflect on the history of God's grace and provision in spite of their sin, it leads them to run to make a covenant, to recommitting to that covenant. The original covenant. And they're saying, we know we haven't been living right, and we want to change. Right? It's, it's repentance is what you're seeing happening here. God's record of kindness, God's record of patience and grace and mercy in my life and in your life is not meant to lead us into more sin or to be laissez-faire towards sin. It's meant to lead to repentance. Romans chapter 2, verse 4 in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul said it this way, Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? He wrote the Romans and he said, when, when you look back on the fact that basically you're not in hell, <laughs> and His wrath hasn't been poured out on you, do you presume and just go, well, God must think sin's not a big deal. Things are, must be good. Don't you understand that all of His kindness, all of His grace, and all of His patience, and all of His all these the forgiveness He extends and the love He extends towards you was not meant to empower you to sin more, but to lead you out of sin. His kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. They could have looked up at God's record of grace in their life and thought, "Wow, you know, great. God's a big old forgiver, and I'm a big old sinner. This is great. Let's just keep going." You know, they could have done that, but that's not the heart of God's people. Repentance recognizes our weakness and our sin and God's power and God's grace and then it runs to God. God's gracious activity in history and in your life is meant to lead you to repentance. It's not to make you think you can get away with it. It's not to make you think that sin's no big deal. It's meant to melt your heart as you see God's love for you in spite of your sin. It's meant to lead you toward Him, which is away from sin. What's your history with God? Do you have one? You do. You do. What sinful things, what stupid things, what foolish things have you done and experienced God's grace in? You know what? That's not meant to make you feel guilty today, Christian. When you look back on your life and you think of all the shameful things you've done and you think of how God forgave you, it's not meant to make you feel guilty today. It's meant to make you worship. They worshipped. They're they're praising Him. They're worshipping Him. As they think back on what God has done, rather than them go hide in a hole somewhere and assume they can't talk to God anymore, they come to God with it. And it causes them to worship because they see that His grace is greater than their sin and they see that it's meant to lead them to repentance. Listen, if you're not a Christian this morning, God stands ready to forgive you. The Bible is full of stories of God's grace. And here we see it through the life of Israel. No matter what you've done, no matter how far you feel away from God, the good news of the Bible is God stands ready to forgive. The question is is really about how can God do that? Since He's this great and awesome God, this holy God. And that's where Jesus comes in. Right? But many years after this, one would come that the Exodus was pointing to. One would come that would fulfill the law that was given to Moses. One would come to redeem God's people, to save God's people, that Jesus would come. 
And that He would bear our sin on the cross. That He would live the obedient life we can't live. That He would go to the cross and die for our sins on the cross so that we can be forgiving. So that the God who stands ready to forgive can forgive. That Jesus would come and would do that. And then He would go and He would sit down at the right hand of God after being raised from the dead. And that you and I can have a relationship with God rooted in not what we've done, but what God's done. The act of God's grace. The fact that He sent Jesus instead of sending fire and judgment. Right? is meant to lead you to repent. Have you turned from your sin? Do you know Christ today? God stands ready to forgive. The question is, do we stand ready to repent? If you're a Christian today, are we walking in repentance or are we walking in rebellion? Are we quick to confess our sin or quick to cover it up? What does your treatment of sin in your life say about your view of God in your life? Maybe today you need to confess and forsake a soft attitude towards sin. In a small view of God. Maybe today you feel beat up by your sin. Like Israel, you look back on your life and you see all your failures, but, failures, but you've forgotten to look at God's hand of grace. God's provision. God's grace is greater than your sin. And He, he stands ready to forgive. The question is always, do we stand ready to confess and to repent, to deal with our sin? Unless we're honest with God, we can't have intimacy with God. And that only comes through sincere Repentance. So if you're going to experience personal renewal, and if we're going to experience corporate revival, it only takes place in God's Spirit and God's Word and you when these come together. And we respond the way God's Spirit is prompting us to and the way God's Word tells us to. And we confess and we repent of our sin and we, and we trust in His grace. We personally, many times are all that stand between us and personal renewal or revival. God's Word is always there. God's Spirit is always at work. And usually the one thing standing in the way is us. And whether we'll deal with our sin. And we've got to be a people, if we're going to be serious about God, we've got to be a people that is serious about sin.